fate of the universe on the line. I want Iguadala. I'm Kevin Durant. You know who I am. The NBA world is aghast at the refs. No matter how many rights, it's always the lefts. A more thankless job there is none in an hour or so. A beautiful podcast would have done on the hashtag Ball is the NBA podcast, your favorite NBA podcast in an Indian accent. We're back at it again with episode 9 and I'm your host Ashwin and let's get straight to it. This week in the association, Candace Parker schooled Shaq on how modern NBA is played. Blake Griffin agreed to a contract buyout with the Pistons in a rare move which left both parties confused. And our favorite NBA show, Inside the NBA, released their four-part origin story on DNB. Uh, speaking of dreams, I've got with me, as always, someone who naps busily, someone who tips generously, and someone who speaks judiciously. My co-host, Vini Devaya. Vini, welcome back to the pod. I hope the part about the tips is correct. It's all correct. I'm a very generous tipper. With words and, and with graciousness. Words. Oh, not with... I say uh, thank money. you a lot. Um, <laughs> Money, money is just something that comes and goes, my friend. It's the words that stay with you. Absolutely, the good words are very rare to get. Good words. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we need a lot of talk about refs, man. Like uh, I, I a lot of talk about refs. Yeah, a lot of talk about refs. So we had to get our favorite ref on this podcast for the first yes, time. Yes, we do. I think he's uh, talking to an Indian podcast. I hope uh, you know it's fun for him. So well, we are the only Indian podcast, so this has to be the first Indian podcast he's talking mm-hmm. to. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, spoken very correctly. So, without further ado, we're going to call our guest on. Our guest tonight is a very special person. He has been an NBA referee for 19 years, calling fouls on Kareem, Magic, Bird, MJ, Isaiah, Ewing, Barkley, Malone, Kobe, Shaq and Timmy. Timmy too? Yes, Timmy too. After that stint, he was the league's director of officials until 2008 and many other ventures with the NBA, all of which are listed on his Wikipedia. It's, it's beautiful. You should go and definitely read it. Please put your hands together and join me in welcoming the only one, Ronnie Nam. Well, glad to be here. Glad to be here, gentlemen. The reason I'm such a big fan of yours is because I find NBA rules like extremely, you know, like pragmatic and to the point. And, you know, there, there's there's also, I mean, they're very precise, but they're also, you know, open to interpretation. And like, there's a little bit of, you know, you can't, uh, you can sort of, uh, you know, bend it a little bit and all that. There's a lot of interpretation also. And uh, I myself... Too much of interpretation, yeah. <laughs> I myself have ref four of my college games. So, I, I always felt that, you know, like, uh, enforcing rules was a lot of fun for me. So, I, I, I always was very fascinated by how you broke down rules and, you know, how you explained it on the uh, B-Ball Breakdown channel. So, huge fan, first of all. Well, uh, thank you for watching B-Ball Breakdown. Uh, it... I met Coach Nick, who uh, runs B-Ball Breakdown, I think in Las Vegas during one of the NBA summer uh, programs that they have. And um, and he came up to me and said, I have a program. <clears throat> Would you like to join me in, in correcting or helping fans, which I did with NBA TV uh, during my tenure as a director. So I had a familiarity, yeah. and, I, and I like that because... Uh, I became a teacher uh, after after my university stay, and uh, so when I became a director, and I got used to looking at the camera, and I was still trying to teach. I got through that, and then it came more naturally to me because it was uh, a teaching has always been a calling for me. So it, it it works out it works out well. And now I'm talking about something that I made a career of, which is um, you know officiating. 
you know, though I had coached at the college level and played, you know, oh, so wow. it, it, it was one of these uh, things that people don't normally transition to. But uh, I was pulled in by a man who kept wanting me to consider it. And I finally did. And the rest is history, as they say. Awesome. awesome. Uh, th- this week, uh, you know, it's been quite uh, tumultuous for the refs. A lot of uh, slander on social media. And uh, Ronnie has done a video with Coach Nick about that Utah game, you know, and uh, they break down some of the uh, correct calls, the incorrect calls, some of the uh, could have gone either way, sort of calls, uh, missed travels, all of those sort of things. So you guys should definitely catch that because we are not going to be talking about specific plays. We are going to talk no. about... My first question, first of all, is... Coach, uh, you came on to the league when there was not much social media, right? Like you had your reporters, they would talk more about the game. Very Maybe refs were not so much in the limelight. Nowadays, you make one wrong move and that's it. Like entire social media rains down upon these refs. They are also young, right? Like they are also... In the 30s, they also are on social media, get affected. So, uh, can you give us a little insight of, is does the NBA work with the refs association to, you know, like work on their mental health? Because players talk a lot about mental health and I'm sure refs also, I mean, mental health is, you know, there for everyone. So, is there some sort of program that uh, the NBA has with respect to referees? Well, to my knowledge, uh, I know during my tenure, we would... We did not have a lot of uh, of sports psychology kind of things. I saw that uh, presented more in the EuroLeague when I began to work with the EuroLeague and I continue to work with the EuroLeague and uh, the NBL of Australia. Uh, but in, in, in the NBA, there wasn't a main focus of having a sports psychologist come in and talk. We've had a few people come and talk that way, but uh, it's probably something... Uh, they should do. I think they do a little bit with it, but I don't know anything officially that uh, that they do concerning a sports psychologist. I do think they facilitate issues as they come up and become profound amongst the staff. For example, um, I recognized uh, a year or two back that there was a great greater conflict between players and referees. So when that situation comes mm-hmm. about, there's a combination of talk that's that that starts with the officiating end that that also continues with the player end uh, there was a meeting i recall uh during an all-star break with the current uh, director monty mccutcheon in trying to press out the wrinkles of this conflict of disagreements mm-hmm. so when you have disagreements it's a matter of how each side uh, uh, kind of in- interacts with each other concerning that that disagreement that was something i know that was talked about I think when it got back to the uh, to the NBA circles of officials in terms of the preseason camp, that would be an emphasis that they would talk about. This is our this is our procedure we'd like to do. This is and we've done that before concerning you know when is the technical foul issued? You know in terms of, for example, uh, heat of the moment. A heat of the moment might we might not respond as we have done before <laughs> by giving a quick technical. So now, I think the heat of the moment part has become a little too diluted at this point. <laughs> I remember, I mean, you, you see these 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 clips of Shaq and Barkley are just wrestling and, and Kareem just like swatting people up and there was no technical. And now if you just kind of shake your head in, 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 uh, in kind of like you dunk and you shake your head, you get a technical. So uh, I think these technicals have softened up a little bit. From, from what it used to be during your time, Ronnie? Well, I think we we were, uh, we had, we extended more latitude uh, on technical fouls and things had to happen more overtly. Uh, 
for technical fouls. Uh, because the, uh, I think it's either the players that upgraded their style of, of complaining too often to where officials now began to give technical fouls very quickly. And then I think it went to engagement and talking. And then there mm. became too much talking and too much engagement as if we're doing a, a clinic. And so you have to find a happy medium. And this continues to happen. I, I think one of the issues that's very important is uh, many of the officials that come to the NBA are not so familiar with the client base of players that are playing. And, and they, need it, they need a pathway more of engaging the kind of style of play, the type of player that's coming up, the type of young person today that reacts more quickly. They need to have a familiarity with that so that when they hear certain things or they notice a certain gesture, not directly di- directly uh, to them, they need to bend a little and leave that alone. Except when a warning is finally given about too much complaining an unnecessary gesture, uh, and then all of a sudden you need to respond with uh, obviously the authority that you have to manage the game and manage the people. Why? So they can perform better. Better, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Ronnie, I think Ashwin Ashwin kind of gave a small introduction about uh, about who you are and who you have officiated, but... Uh, you know, you, you you just threw out a couple of the things. You said you 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 were a part of the Euro League and Australia. So can you can you just kind of give everybody who's listening a small, I mean, a small or a long introduction of your journey as a uh, as a referee or uh, you know your journey with I mean, how you fell? Yeah, exactly. How you fell yeah. in love with the game and then you know. yeah. <clears throat> well, um, when I was playing international basketball in Mexico after my university time, I. Uh, I, I began to, I got a little ill, and so I stepped off the basketball court, came home, and uh, tried to recuperate. And I was trying out for the NBA on a couple of teams, uh, Denver Rockets of the ABA, which was a profound league uh, at one time. And uh, and also, um, I was trying to, I actually tried out with the New York Knicks locally. So I had been wanting to always be in the NBA uh, but then with the illness, I had to regroup because I didn't get well yet. So that was one of the things that were inhibiting me. So while I began to get well a couple of three years later, uh, I began to play in a local program called the Pro-Am. And it was, a, it, it was, yeah, it was an innovation by the then C- assistant supervisor officials of the NBA, Cecil Watkins. And Cecil Watkins had created a Pro-Am league in every NBA city. And, and uh, he asked me one time when he first tried to engage me, he said, what do you think about this league? I said, geez, you know, I knew Cecil from way back, but I didn't know his current position. And I said, uh, Mr. Watkins, I said, yeah, it's, it's very competitive. I mean, players like myself that have played overseas, some that have been in the NBA, very competitive. He said, well, this league is not for you. I said, what do you mean? It's not for you because you're a player. So I was confused. He said, this league is created by me for the referees so they can understand modified NBA rules, so they can understand contact, so they can understand mechanics. And uh, and he said, and I'd like for you to consider being a referee. And, and so I thought he meant high school. So I said, well, you know, you know, I'm coaching at Pace. I'm teaching at a high school in special education. I, just not an interest. Maybe I'll continue coaching at Pace and, and at another school and go the, pay, uh, the coaching route. But... Um, he, and I said, NBA. So I did like this. You know, I put like, get back, you know. <laughs> the, the, 
the demons in the NBA, the <laughs> which, uh, which you know, which I had failed at uh, primarily. Uh, I would say a lack of ability, you know, maybe. And the other was obviously being ill. I couldn't get past the ill part to, to get through it and try it again. Right. So nonetheless, it was definitely, no, don't talk to me, NBA. So after three years of dealing with getting my health better, playing in this tournament, he constantly asked me every year. So finally, the final year at 30, uh, I went into the program and uh, I had excellent tutoring. I refereed uh, early high school in the community. I refereed summer league basketball in the community, uh, especially in hotbed areas like Harlem, New York, that had a lot of basketball, and Brooklyn, where I was born and raised. And uh, four years later, I was appointed to the NBA. And I don't think because I had some child prodigy ability, they were looking for former players to transition, uh, uh, which doesn't always make a good referee. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I, I did that. But I really did something... Uh, that I wish I would have done more in basketball. I had a great focus to see if I could transition. I wish I had, you know, sometimes you focus more at 30 than you do at 20. So, <laughs> so. Uh, you wish you had the focus at 20. <laughs> everywhere. So, um, that's why the world is one community. So, and, and so, in doing so, I really focused. And the preparation in that league that was given me with the instruction fast forwarded me that when I tried out two years later in, in front of Daryl Garrettson in, uh, in California where the tryout was, uh, they immediately put me in the CBA, the Continental Basketball Association, which is the current G League. Um, it's had various names, uh, CBA, then the D League, then the G League, the but G they've all done the same. And so I've had some minor league practice there and for two years and two years later at the age of 34, uh, I was entered into the NBA, and actually the the number on my back was giving me was thirty four, so that was kind of coincidental, and um, and I began to realize as I started to continue to learn that there's there's basketball playing, there's basketball coaching, and then there's this remote angle of this triangle, <clears throat> which is officiating, and uh, obviously that's what I'm known for involved in officiating. And I I embrace it as one of the things that many people don't do, many people don't know, and many people don't have the experience of having done it and realizing the the teamwork that's involved and the ability of your eyes to not look at the dribbler, but to look at the defender who makes 90% of the fouls. <laughs> It's like watching Bruce Bowen all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a that's a quick story of, uh, and I still love it, and I still am very proud to teach what I know and to share it, and to make uh, people better, and also to come up with innovative ideas that will help people transition into their work easier. I, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Ronnie joined the league in 1984 as a referee, correct? Which is the which is the Hakeem Jordan Barkley. Uh, that it was that draft class. So I mean, you you got a, I mean, you come into the NBA and you automatically you first of all see Jordan. Like how how was how was that feel? I mean, you have seen a lot of the NBA. Well, I have to tell you, uh, I'm very thankful, uh, as fate would have it, that I joined the NBA at a time where they had phenomenal basketball playing. Yes. Uh, yes. Phenomenal basketball players. Uh, that's not to say that they don't have phenomenal players today, but the game is a little different. Uh, in those days, uh, a, 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 a post player was a key player 
in NBA basketball. And every every scout and every draft, they were looking for that excellent big man. And I had a number of big men to work with, whether it was uh, Kareem, who who I was very happy to have a few years, uh, who I knew back in New York City anyway, who I knew of and been around his company a little. And then, of course, Akeem Olajuwon and Ewing and Lambeer and uh, 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 Robert Parrish, uh, I, I mean, you name it. When I, uh, David Robinson, uh, Tim Duncan, uh, they they just kept flowing out of of play. And I, I apologize for missing people like the giant Mark, Mark Eaton, Shaquille, um, of course Shaquille. Um, uh, like I said, Mark Eaton, or Minute Bowl, who uh, Bowl. you know. So there was just a. The word, I guess, is plethora. There was just a plethora of players. And then all of a sudden you had uh, phenomenal players like Isaiah and Michael uh, and Barkley. Uh, uh, unbelievable forward, forward, uh, small forward, power forward, Carl Malone. I mean, they just were... It's a great base for having had that experience. You know, one of the things about basketball officiating is you're always catching up to the player innovations. They create innovations, and you've got to catch up to them because, uh, and of course, cast it against the backdrop of legality or not, whether they're legal in doing these things or not. But they're they're always doing things that are advantages to themselves, and you've got to pick up and see how does that how does that base legally or not. And, uh, and and so that's another thing that's wonderful about the game. It's kind of like its own offense and defense. You have your own offense and where you belong, what you're looking for. And then, of course, your own defense in terms of how to validate what you're doing. You're defending yourself in your decision making. So it's a validation of your own work as you as you run your game, as you uh, play your game in that mode of officiating. So it's a team. It has things it's to do. You're responsible for what you should do. And you're responsible for recognizing game after game, play after play, a residue of plays in your head that you're familiar with. So your your reactions are habitual and familiar. And the yeah. more you can have that, the easier it is to work. Oh, coach, uh, so one question I had was, uh, I mean, maybe th- this is uh, probably most relevant is, uh, you know, there there are these marquee games that people always call as the worst co- worst refereed games. And I don't think you were you were a part of those, but I think the two kind of very important games that I can think of is the Lakers and the Sacramento Kings uh, uh. game and also the, the Dallas Mavericks and the Miami Heat games in, in the finals. Are there, do you, uh, do you, when you're sitting back, just go like, oh my God, how bad can they be? Or do you, like, do you sense that as a player uh, or, you know, as a fan, when you see bad officiating in, in key games, or do you see what the officials saw? Like, are you able to kind of distinguish the both? Well, you know, like anybody, once you get into this business, you begin to have a new perspective on how you look at things. When I look at a game, uh, as we all, when we look at a game, we, we, we can really recognize how, how great the game is, especially with the highlighted players, the greater players. But when you're officiating, and sometimes I will look at a game like I used to as a fan, I'll look at another quarter like I used to as a player. It, it kind of fits in. And then all of a sudden, when I have to get a serious tone about the game, it's when I'm officiating, when I'm noticing the officiating takes my, 
my uh, my focus off the other two. And now I'm starting to look at what's happening and it becomes a breakdown. And then I start looking at why it's happening and how it's happening. So um, when I saw the Sacramento, when I became aware of Sacramento LA Laker issue, uh, in terms of going into the finals, I think those two teams were. I was yeah, a rest conference. I finals. was a referee at that time. So at the mindset, yeah. the mindset of that is one thing about referees. Every morning when you're on the plane and you're looking at USA Today or one of the papers that they sell at the airports, you look at the games and you look at the box score and you look at the technicals and you look at you know and you go, wow, they threw out so and so. They ejected this guy. There was five technicals, and what you say to yourself is like a war. It's, boy, I'm glad it's not my game. <laughs> I know now in the, I know now at, the, at 645 Fifth Avenue at the office, they are not looking at my game. They, they, <laughs> so that's one thing. Now, when you talk about the Miami Heat and the Dallas uh, series and, and, a, and a play or two at the stretch was... Uh, at the end, which cost Dallas, I think. Yeah, uh, it was, yeah. yeah uh, it, I remember that. It's considered the worst officiated final series ever. Well, I, That's what it's I didn't kind of see it as that. I just saw that, you know, sometimes you... Listen, the thing about officiating is different than playing. You can go 0 for 10 in your shots, and on the 11th shot, you could be the game winner, and they will turn all the all the commentary around and make you the hero. They'll build a hero out of you. Even you've missed all those shots, but look at the great shot he made, the focus that he made to win the game. <laughs> in, in, the, in the NBA, in terms of officiating, you can have 10 great calls, and then all of a sudden the 11th call or non-call becomes the issue which ruins the whole game. You know, So it's such a contradiction. But uh, there was a play I remember down the stretch which uh, the owner, Mark Cuban, was... Uh, was really uh, upset about, and at that time I was the director. So oh, yeah. Okay. So when you're the director, you know you're you're watching. It's like having a family. Uh, I mean, my heart was in it. I don't know if I did as good a job as I would have liked to in terms of teaching and and embracing a staff. But I was a I was a guy who knew when I got this job that the 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 competency of our work had to be higher. This I knew. And I also felt that I was able to do it because all the things I had done in basketball, including the officiating, uh, not, not that I was the greatest official at all by any means. I was amongst the best in the league when I was there. Uh, I started realizing what does it take for the whole unit to get better? So, uh, and that came along with the data. The data was coming into play and officials got nervous about data because they knew this was another criteria by which they were going to be measured. So uh, it was, it was oh, wow. hard, to, to, hard to get everybody on the same page to do the things that I knew we could do. In other words, uh, I knew we could raise the data of our abilities and not to be worried about your specific data, just crew-wise work well. So uh, when you, these, these things that say this is the worst game ever, this, that, and the other, listen, they come up whether it's in the finals whether it's in the conference finals, whether it's coming uh, like the complaint about the Utah game the other day with Philly that uh, people say that it, there's always the worst game ever. There's always that title, but it's really not true. Uh, and what you really do see is you start seeing why certain plays are called or why did you lose the credibility and the believability of TV announcers, the fans, the coaches. 
So I always say, I love to have a game that's worse for everybody on both teams. Because, <laughs> because, <laughs> because when the coaches call or the general managers call in and say, look, this game was terrible. I don't even think it was just terrible for me. I think it was terrible for the other team too. And I go, okay, okay, I can, I can work with that. And by the way, I, I need to know that. I need to know that. So right. it's not a problem because I want to find out why we made these errors. What are we doing to do this? So uh, I always like it when it's evenly upset than when one team looks more disadvantaged in the game according to the calling than the other team. Because then, then I start looking at why. And the usual people will think the, the why is, well, you don't like Philadelphia, that's why. You know, your guys don't like Philadelphia. Look at all the technicals that we have. Look at all these game-ending numbers that we lose out on them and whatever have you. But the bottom line always is that for an official to uh, make good calls promotes him. It promotes him into a status of uh, instead of being uh, an umpire, he's a referee. Instead of being a referee, he's a crew chief. So there's that internal status. It also says, am I projected for extra monies into the playoffs? So I want to be good enough to get to the first round, then to the second round, then to the and third round, and then to the finals. So it is incumbent on every official to want to do well because he makes more money to do well. He's he's given a status, his reputation begins to build as a quality, dependable, dependable person on the game where you can see a person and say, this guy, no matter where he goes to work, he is embraced and accepted. And they accept his mistakes, uh, which are less than most, uh, because uh, they believe that it's an honest mistake. So it's credibility that goes on with officials, and they try to do that, and um, and, and that's the key. So a crazy game, worst game ever, that's all just fanfare. Uh, we've had enough of them, and by the way, tomorrow or tonight, we'll have another one somewhere. The, the key is to have less. And I, and I think the other thing is for officials is that when they look at each other and go, this guy's in the finals, you know, I think I should have been there this year, or... You know, yeah. uh, or someone who wants to get in the playoff. In that same program, I think I should be the crew chief. It also happens about this. Which officials make less mistakes? It's not about mm -hmm. the officials not making mistakes. It's about who yeah. makes less mistakes. So that's the issue. And sometimes that's political playing because some people will stand back and not commit to something because they want to make less Mistakes. Mistakes. But, oh, but, interesting. But when you're but when you're watching a crew as a team, you're seeing who are proactive people, and you're seeing people who are sometimes I wouldn't say the word hiding, but are more cautious. And in officiating, you you have to be cautious, but you have to be proactive. Show me right. that you are looking to target things and be part of of um, of just a converting good good decision making. Coach, my question is uh, this. Uh, I mean, you love basketball. That's why you, you know, you are the NBA. When does the, how, how difficult it is for, as a ref for you to officiate properly, but then not get influenced by, you know, the star that you're refereeing. Like I, I've seen uh, clips of, you know, referees being awestruck just by watching MJ, even when he was in his Washington days, because, you know, that's MJ. So 
especially on the court, you are three people. Three, it's a team there as well, and you guys are also running up and down. There's fatigue is there. You guys are probably running as much as the players, but you know they get uh, rest. They can get subbed out. You don't have that luxury. Uh, plus, you have to make quick decisions. You have to figure out what is wrong before you have to be in the right positions. All of that is there, and you're seeing Kareem in front of you. You're seeing Hakeem in front of you. You're seeing MJ in front of you. So, how how, how does it work? Like, uh, has there been? I mean, honestly, has there been a moment when you were like, "Let me just watch MJ dunk"? Like, I don't care, you know, what else is happening on the court. I I've got the best seat in the house. <laughs> That's a good expression. Yes, you do have the best seat in the house, and uh, you know, listen, you got the best seat in the house. You're running with the best horses in the race, so to speak. You're 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 part of the entertainment of an evening in a city, which is, it's it's like whether you're going to the theater or you're going to a basketball a game at a big arena. You're part of all of that. I think for me, for me, one of the things that helped me was that I had played basketball with players that were very very good and many better than me. So I didn't have the sense of uh, uh, nervousness or, or just kind of an, an awestruck feeling when I was working. What was important to me was, do I get my calls and my decisions right? Am I focused on what they're doing? Am I focused to the nature of how certain people play so I can understand uh, whether they're being uh, fouled or th- that contact is marginal and it's a play on? So I, I didn't become as awestruck. I think the issue is, and I think journalists... T- uh, TV interviewers like yourself and what yes. have you. <laughs> podcast, podcast interviewers. <laughs> yeah, podcast, <laughs> podcast. Just as good, just as good today. Uh, I think what happens is when something happens to a star player, meaning uh, from getting hurt, from getting hurt to getting called fouls very early on where he's seated, from getting ejected from a game because people come to see these great players or Michael Jordan, a Kobe Bryant, you know, uh, a Kareem. So I think what happens is and not, not a, a star player should have no advantage than, than another. In fact, I'll throw this in. Most star players that are complaining about fouls are usually fouled because they play yeah. through fouls where we don't whistle. All the time. We don't yeah. whistle them because they're so their ability to convert so much of what they do. If they're known as rebounders, if they're known as good post players, if they're known as scorers and shooters, they they are driving to the hoop. Sometimes there's contacts. I've had I've had plays where Michael would go or Kobe would go to the basket and and I'd be there and I'd see something and it didn't look that much. And to me, it was marginal. It was a playthrough. Ball happened to go in the hoop, and they turn around and say, Ronnie, I got hit on that. I got hit on that. Because every player wants to get what he's owed, whether it's the last guy on the team or the top star. But the key to stars is sometimes we miss plays that they deserve to have instead of people saying they won't call that play on that guy because he's the star. And, and right. the bottom line is it goes back to the basics. The basics are people highlight the stars. So when you're out there in a game, you don't think to yourself, okay, this is Charles Barkley. He plays a little rough. He plays a little aggressive. I got to make sure, you know, I don't call everything on him because he's going to sit down. Uh, that, that's not the issue. The issue is uh, this is kind of like a war and I've got to protect the foxhole that I'm in from people running into me, running over me. So I want to yeah. make sure that when I target 
and I whistle something that you're wrong, then I've got, I want to be right even the more because they're going to get the highlighted information on next day's headline uh, that they were mistreated or that, that four of their, uh, of their five, six fouls were uh, incorrect. And that's a problem because that, that puts on the officials that made that mistake because they're star players. It doesn't really work the other way around <clears throat> where an official does a good job and nobody says anything but, yeah, nice. they did a nice job tonight, you know? <clears throat> it, it, it's, a, it's kind of a thankless job in, in, the, in the end of the day, I guess. Yeah, uh, but, but the bottom line is, yes, there, is those, there are myths out there concerning star players. There are myths out there concerning uh, the number of fouls one team got and the other team didn't get, and who gets into penalty sooner. You know, uh, you know coaches come up to you and say, uh, you know, we're getting fouled too, aren't we? In this game, aren't we? Can can it be perfect that they only committed one foul in the last ten minutes, and, and thing, and things of that nature? And I and I and I, I I don't mind that because I want to make sure at the first moment I can speak with the crew is let us be sure we are not missing anything because there is an imbalance with the fouls. And uh, yes. and people normally think, but you know, the nature of the game might be different from one team or the other. There may be more players driving to the hole. There may be more players that are looking for fouls while driving to the hole that they're trying to lure contact, that the contact's not really doing anything. It's the person creating the contact. So there's a lot of little nuances in that, but you have to be aware. And I think the final thing is how you manage manage the players. They will help you in a way. They will help you uh, stay, stay even keeled in the work. Uh, if they also respect you and know that you're good at what you do, uh, there's less yeah. conflict. I think the issue today is <clears throat> with conflict is that we have many, many new basketball referees. There is a youth program, even though there are guys in their 40s uh, that are working, uh, early 50s, they've come from such a group of officials that are iconic. Uh, uh, even when when I entered or when uh, Joe Crawford or Steve Javi or Danny Crawford or uh, Bennett Salvatore entered this level, uh, there were iconic referees like Earl Strom yeah. and Jake O'Donnell and Daryl Garrison. I, I think somehow our group uh, carried the baton uh, better uh, than this younger group because I think this younger group is, I don't know, seemingly Young. more generic or something. I don't know what it is, uh, uh, but that doesn't mean all of them. Yeah. There's always the top ones, and uh, you, you know uh, I think it. I think it's going to come about better. And don't forget the players are younger. The game is different. Uh, I think. By the way, last comment is the game is easier to ref. Ah, that was one of my questions. I knew it was might be one of your questions. It is easier to ref today because there's not a lot of physical contact post play. There is uh, tricky plays from Harden. You know, there's perimeter basketball going on. There's drives and dishes. There's three-point shots. Not a lot of... It's like a country game. Out in the country, it's nice and wide open. You've got nice perspective. It's like that. <laughs> but when I was growing up in the game, it was... It's all in the paint. It's all it's in all the paint. paint. It's in the it's city. The it's crowded. Yeah. It's it's physical. You know, yeah. there's, there's people getting paid for rebounding. There's people being paid for post-play. There's people who are backing down people there. It's, it's physical. Today, it's nice and wide open, similar to a ballet. I mean, yeah. 
God bless him. Stevie Wonder, I think, could referee some of these games today. So, uh, <laughs> it, but uh, but no matter you know, no matter what the game is, it's still uh, a heavy weight when you are an official because mm-hmm. even though it's easier, the one play may happen more often that creates a problem because there's less there's less plays to deal with. So that one yeah. play is going to stick out more because the game is easier. So you have to always guard against the, the, the one play, the one play that LeBron does, the one play that somebody does that creates noise. You know, the one play where Damon, Draymond Green may get ejected for. It's that one play that sticks out now. And before there were a, a multiple amount of plays and the one play would really step out. You'd know it. But today only takes one to make it have a problem. Coach, I have a question. Uh, I, I do agree with you about the 80s. I think the 80s were probably the best era for basketball. Uh, just phenomenal players. And my favorite team of the 80s, Kareem was my favorite player. Uh, and uh, I think he's the best player to ever play basketball. I would like to, I would like to hear some stories, some Kareem stories from you. Uh, but before that, I want to talk about my favorite team, which is the Detroit Pistons. Oh. Uh, when did they become your favorite team? In the 80s, in the 80s, in the 80s. Spurs are my favorite team, but in the 80s, the Detroit Pistons are my favorite team. Uh, and I don't know if you were, you, you ever officiated one of the bad boy games or any of the playoff games that they were in. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about, uh, one is obviously they were very physical, but I also believe that I've seen some of the full games. They were never always physical. Yes, they had some physical plays. But I think the highlights make them look like they were a little bit more bad boys than they were actual bad boys. Can you talk a little bit more about that 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 era of the bad boy Pistons? Well, you're right about the talent level. They had talent. You know, in the NBA, uh, you can have two great players on a team and it's not enough. You can get there to the higher levels, but you it's hard to win the finals. I mean, look yes. at Jerry West and Elgin Baylor. I mean, that's how old I am. Uh, Jerry Jerry West and Elgin Baylor were, were two great phenoms at L.A., but they couldn't win it until Wilt Chamberlain, l- later on in his career as an older person, completely older, came and said, I'll just come and rebound for you. I won't have to make 100 points. I'll just come. It took one more player to really, you know, uh, galvanize that championship team. The Detroit Pistons were talented at the guard position with Isaiah and Joe Dumars. Very talented. I mean, Isaiah is a very talented player. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about him. And also, um, they had a a tough front line. They had a guy who created rebounding uh, as a special person. Uh, Dennis Rodman opened the gates for rebounders. Now, listen, in the NBA, there have always been outstanding rebounders. Every team that was a winning team had an outstanding rebounder all the way through. But Dennis Rodman made it a specialty where people were hiring people just to rebound. I'll give you a quick story. I was in the locker room getting, and, and, and it was in San Antonio when he was with San Antonio for a short time. And I was getting my ankle taped by the home trainer. And, I, and it was about five minutes. So I told uh, one of our guys, Handle the captain's meeting. I, I need to tape this angle. I don't, this ankle. I don't feel as good. So I run in there, ask the trainee. He says, yeah, Ronnie, no, jump on the table. I'll take care of you in a minute. And as I'm in there, Dennis Rodman is on the bike. And he's, so I'm thinking immediately. And I say to him, Dennis, how, are you okay? Oh, you go, and he's biking. Oh, I'm fine, Ronnie. I'm fine. I said, the game's getting ready to start out there. Are you, are you playing? 
Oh, oh, oh Ronnie, I'm playing. I'll be out there. I, I said, but you, you haven't even been on a layup line. He said, <clears throat> he said, Ronnie, I don't shoot. I don't shoot layups and I don't shoot shots. I rebound. That's what I do. <laughs> I said, I get it, Dennis. Don't foul anybody tonight while you're rebounding. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure he did not listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> Dennis was a unique, gifted, and talented man who, who had his quirks and had his things. But, uh, you know, when you're good at something in the NBA, people find out what you're good at and they try to break it down. So as, as tough as Dennis was, there were people trying to you know, do things to not make Dennis as good as he is. Everything. That has to do with scorers. That has to do with rebounders, post players. If you go left too much, people start saying, all right, well, let's guard him left. So he goes right. But the bottom line is they had him. They had Mark Aguirre. And they had uh, they had another really tough guy, Rick Mahorn, which people forget about. So this yeah. bad boy image also developed because the nature of some of their fouling techniques were hard fouls. They were right yes. at the border, what we would many times call today flagrant ones, you know, unnecessary contact. Yeah. Um, but it didn't come into play at that time until later on when we started seeing that we have to do something about hard fouls. And why was that? I think because the marketing of the game started looking too too physical. And people were starting to say, oh, I love the college game. And I love this. And, and listen, the college game has some great things to it. There's no question. But the NBA game is is big time basketball and it's tough basketball, but they wanted more fluidity. So, by the way, the Detroit Pistons created a winning type of format, which physical play, uh, talented play in terms of shooters and scorers, uh, including Lambeer, who was not particularly a post back down player. Like a he was pop up. He was pop a, up he was, kind of yes, yes. He, he created that. And, uh, and and they had, of course, what happens is when people win. The other teams go, how did they win? So what they do is they begin to copycat the winning tone. So now you have in the early 90s, you've the got Knicks. the Knicks with, <laughs> with Oakley and Anthony Mason and Patrick Ewing. So now you have this yeah. combination of physical uh, play. Pat Riley's coaching. He's, he's working with what he's got. And they go, this is a winning way because Detroit won this way. You know, so... Yeah. Um, Instead of the fluidity of a, of a, of the Celtics, who have always had that as their denominator, the running and moving and the good shooting, so that team lost. So the, so yeah. so now you know Detroit is being copied. So I would say uh, that's how things go on. But the game began to become too physical, and that's when these new uh, insertions of the type of physicality that we were not going to allow anymore, and we wanted more freedom of movement, which was a term. And, and now we see that uh, in, in, even in today. As a matter of fact, it, it's very loosey-goosey today. And I'm wondering... It's too loosey-goosey. Yeah, I, I, I'm wondering when the defending people are going to start saying, you know, there's no uh, defense. There's no defense. There's no defense. There's no defense. You know, uh, I've been around long enough where I see cyclical things. The ABA had the three-point line. They brought that line to the NBA. It was a, it was, and what happened was you got a lot of shooting... A lot of distance shooting, but no defense. So trust me, defense is going to come back because the game looks too, uh, too, uh, too easy. And, yeah. and is anybody stopping anybody? So I think those things will come about. So Ashwin, I apologize. Go ahead. 
No, no, no. I, I was just going to say that, you know, Vineet had this point on an earlier podcast that uh, there are a lot of bad teams in the NBA today because none of them give any two hoots about, you know, defense. They're like, oh, okay, they, they don't have the intensity to, okay, I'm going to stop my man. And uh, most teams are like, okay, you score, we'll score, you'll score, we'll score. It's, it's, there's not much of that, you know, defense. They, they all try to emulate the uh, Splash Brothers, but they don't shoot like them. They all shoot threes, but they don't shoot like them. Right. And nobody has thought that, let me just go inside, get those two points. And, you know, higher percentage, like that sort of mentality has gone complete. It's so free-flowing and so unrestricted that, the, I mean... Where, where there should be at least you know some help for the defense and uh, yeah and, and I think I think the point that I was trying to make uh, coach and I think that's what Ashwin is kind of pointing out is that I was, I was pointing out to the New York Knicks uh, who are not that great of, of, offensively but because their defense is decent they're actually winning games because the rest of the rest of the league does not play defense anymore so defense like you said it's cyclical is that, that now slowly defense will become the thing that is going to you know kind of give you more of an edge rather than the free-flowing offense because everybody's now doing the free-flowing offense. So I think you're right that the cyclical thing is going to come back again. Yeah, and, I, and I, I'm not only saying that as a, as a referee, uh, you know, I kid about it, but, uh, you know, obviously I made my, my mark in, 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 this, in the world as a referee, but I'm a fan of the game. and I'm a basketball player too, you know, and a coach. Uh, uh, you know, I don't have the extensive experiences in those areas anymore, but I see the game. And, uh, and that's why I think about defensive-minded the coaches who are going to start saying, you know, if I'm going to trade baskets, uh, you know, some, this is not new where people say, you know what, I don't have good defense, but I got a great offense. If I can outscore you, I can do that too. I can win that way also. And, and they're, they, you know, that's in, that happens. But what happens is not everybody can score all the time as well as they think. And not everybody yeah. can fast break because, <laughs> you know, some people will say we're going to stop the fast break. I mean, everybody knows in a college game, when you go to, I, I was a college player. It's all fast breaks. Yeah, yeah, you know, you say, hey, listen, this team fast breaks. And what we have to do is stop the break and bring them into a, a, a half court, uh, you know, on offense. That'll slow them down. So if you can't stop them, uh, you know, they go on and play their game. So everybody's always trying to interrupt one's game or one team's game. And I think the defensive posturing is going to come back, as you just mentioned, the Vinit on on the Knicks. All of a sudden, winning some games and recognizing that defense is balancing their approach to to winning. Uh, we, we should be a little, little careful about you know uh, praising or you know insulting certain teams because when we uh, talk shit about the Washington Wizards, they went on a seven uh, seven three run, <laughs> and when we <laughs> talked uh, great about the New York Knicks. Uh, Next, then they started losing games. And then <laughs> right. we talked shit about the Celtics, and then Celtics are on a four-game unbeaten run. So it's uh, it's like we are always wrong. <laughs> it, it's hard to uh, it's hard to uh, I, I I don't know how people you know as far as gambling is concerned, which is out out here everywhere. I don't know how people mm-hmm. can gamble on basketball games at the at the NBA and, level. I I really really don't. I mean, right, right. I mean, I, I, I was never yeah. I, I was never a gambler even when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Now I grew up in a neighborhood mm-hmm. where there were a lot of people that did that, uh, along with other stuff. I'm glad to have come out of that neighborhood in life, but uh, but I don't know how you can tell any night uh, you know what's going to go on in this current game, in this yes. current game. That was part one of our two-part episode with coach Ronnie Nunn of Nunn Better Refs. For episode two, please subscribe to us on Google Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube for the full episode in one part. 
So until part 2 goodbye and uh, have fun